This is a very special episode of Through the Window, News of the Century. I want to sort of keep a little bit on track with the topics of parts of the book that we have complicated feelings about and return to a comparison you made earlier in terms of this book having a The Last Jedi feel. Let's talk about the end of Seth's story. Yeah, I I was actually thinking in my head, okay, what haven't we talked about yet in this mm-hmm. book? Okay, uh, Seth, I want to talk about his character and like mm-hmm. not just where he ends, but how his character comes across in this book compared to previous ones. So, mm-hmm. as always, your mind, my mind, I'm <laughs> I'm mining, I'm miming drift stuff from Pacific <laughs> Rim. So, anyway, well. That's that's what makes us good partners. We don't actually have... Well, actually, hold on a second. I mean, we're communicating via Skype. So I guess you could say we have a digital drift going on. I, I don't get that reference. Of course I do. Yeah, I was about to say, I was like, wait, is this being serious? Um, I I have weird humor sometimes, but... um, Okay, fair enough. I just didn't hear any reaction from you, so I wasn't sure for a second. uh, So, Seth's, like, ending Mm -hmm. is mysterious as balls. It's a technical term. But, like, that memory he has, which I thought that little, like, through line of James having the blue bottle in Uncivil Outlaw, which he got in exchange for the Starlit Orb, which mm. didn't have an endowment in it at the time, yeah. did it? It didn't. No, right? it did. No, the, yeah. he was he was providing it to Yagano specifically with the intent of, can you take Abigail's endowment out of her and put it in put this it in orb. This. So we and know he, because we know it's one of the few things that can contain yeah. the endowment. Yeah. Yeah. And he didn't necessarily intend to leave it behind, but because he did, he kind of unwittingly made a bargain, which sort of shows the slippery slope with Uganda mm, that mm, he mm. makes one deal willingly, another deal gets made without his necessary express consent. So like that's just how you're gonna do but with the bottle you think like you're gonna knows what it is james manages to actually infer quite a bit considering like at the end you see yeah realize, oh that- wow and it's just like wow james what a leap like seth could have looked at that and it's like what is that so like it's quite remarkable that he's able to put two and two together from all the information that he's probably gathered and heard about seth from like numerous sources but that memory with the child and the mother and father and i believe he's the father in that scene but i mean it's it's mysterious and you don't know everything and you get the feeling that seth doesn't necessarily know everything like well that's that's the ongoing tragedy of seth and 
is a part of the conversation that he had, or rather that that James had with Yagana at the end, in that she establishes that he gave up everything to mm-hmm. for for the situation that they're currently in. We already know that he gave his last memory, which I presume is the thing that was in the bottle. And honestly, I can't remember now if we actually saw a visual all the way back in Steamheart where we saw that exchange and therefore we should actually know, we should have known what was in that bottle, the audience at least, not necessarily anybody else, that that's what that was. It was here that I went all the way back to Steamheart, to a scene that I had not looked at since my first listen in 2019. The memory in the bottle is almost certainly the final memory that Yagana took in trade for healing Krau. Given the similarities in color during Chapter 39 in Steamheart and Chapter 16 in Uncivil Outlaw. That said, one wonders if Rao was able to give a clear accounting of this. She was in pain and delirious, after all, and just because Raven wrote an account of the events of Steamheart for all to read, it doesn't mean that his text includes everything from the book the real world audience reads. But keeping that in mind, if Rao did say it, then of all people, James would be the one to remember it. Which he may well have done. But the text doesn't make clear if James's knowledge comes from a place of intuition, or if it comes from having remembered an account that someone provided, either Rao or Raven. And perhaps, in the end, it doesn't matter. So... To a very real extent, Seth had nothing left of his original life. He exchanged it all for the whatever power he got from Yagana, whether it was the healing ability or potentially the connection to Brayoth or potentially the connection to the Wendigo as well, because there was the implication as Sana was there at his death that the thing that allowed him to communicate with the other Wendigo was similar to the endowment that was inside her. And so therefore we don't necessarily know um, where that power came from. It might have been something that Yagana already had and was part of whatever arrangements she made with him. And that also actually and means for that... what purpose that was mm-hmm. originally made for. Like, mm-hmm. th- is this a case of like Seth having this deal gets worse all the time, and uh-huh. it's because he literally can't remember why he made it in the first place? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's part of the difficulty with Seth's story in general. It's hard to know or to ever find out what happened with him because he himself may not even remember. He made choices, but he may not remember why he made those choices. Mm. It seems like he may have once been human, Mm. but at least from the implication of that memory that returns to him at the end. But there is also the implication that he came from Saitash or something like that. Like, did did he show up as a result of those portals showing up? Because he clearly has a connection to the Wendigo, and he clearly has blood that, if given to others, will cause the Wendigo infection, 
very possibly quicker than the normal translation because it seemed like so all is the that way back like in Arlington. Nadia has that that starts to become the question, yes. Is he just a strange survivor of it the way Nadia was? But mm. by the same token, he also looks very inhuman to begin with. Mm. And so one has to ask, is that a result of he's a strange An humanoid va- variant from Saitash? Or mm. is he someone that was infected from Saitash and then came across Yagana later on and became what he is now? We're just never actually going to know where for the he time came being from. well for the time being but that the problem is is that he's now dead and even if he wasn't dead he may not remember why things happened to him the way they did hmm. the only one who may know is yagana and she is definitely not going to be telling anyone at least not without getting something in return or anything like that. Mm. Um, that's that's what it is. Yagana only gives after she's taken. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I felt frustrated at the end of this book when I realized that we weren't necessarily going to get any answers in regards to who he was and why he became the person that he was in a certain way, a dark reflection of Thomas Arlington based on their confrontation all the way back in his book. Mm. But at the same time, Thomas already sort of has his dark reflection now because he became white. And so therefore is the presence of Seth sort of superfluous at this point. But Mm. the reason why I'm drawing on the last Jedi influences here to a certain degree is that one could relate it back to the way that we never find out anything about what the deal with Snoke was and then is abruptly killed by Kylo Ren as being a part of his arc, which Mm. honestly doesn't bug me that much because like, yes, he may be of the the person that helped set Kylo Ren down his current path, or at the very least may have empowered him to go down his current path. But that doesn't mean Snoke's story was interesting. We barely knew anything about him, so that when he yeah. died, it'd just be like, oh, okay, he's off the table. Mm. But the problem is, is that we're more invested, invested in, Seth. in Seth. yeah. And so therefore, the fact that his story is done feels like a tragedy, almost. Not mm. like he shouldn't that have... That may be somewhat intentional, because... yeah. We don't feel like the Empire has fallen, like, Seth is dead. Like, it is sad because you wonder, like, there is a nobility to him as destructive as he is, but there is also so much, like, there's not even that iconic Blade Runner thing of all of those moments will be lost, like, tears in the rain. Those mm-hmm. That's already happened to Seth. He yeah. has already lost all of that. And now there is no hope of recovery. That, like, if New Century is all about healing and grief and recovery, and Seth is someone who has lost, in some ways, more than most, because he can't even carry his loss with him. He just carry it and take some sort of strength from it. He just has an emptiness. He has more strength than many other characters, but he is 
empty of that kind of totality that grief, as much as it is a result of an absence, it is nevertheless something that the process of it is part of the human experience. But Seth doesn't really grieve. He can't because mm. there is just no integrity to what he feels his absence is. Having thought about it some more and reviewed key moments when we might learn something about Seth, he goes out of his way to never answer any questions, and the few answers he gives inadvertently are vague. We don't even know what he doesn't know, except that he kept the memories from his last few years, the ones that speak to his purpose. As to the rest, one wonders if he chose to forget his past not simply in exchange for power, but in order to shut himself off from whatever pain or grief he experienced from that previous life. And if so, if that is a part of the reason why his story is here, to contrast with the arcs of our protagonists. With Snoke, it was very much a case of, I think you can sort of see that the path that Kylo Ren went down on, as much as he may have once called Snoke Master, it feels like Snoke was an enabler that like mm. that Kylo Ren already had something within him that felt scared and lashing out and I think Snoke is positioned as someone who took that and just mm -hmm. sort of enables it and directs it to wherever benefited him mm -hmm. and you get that from the interactions you see and so it becomes clear that there's not really much else more that needs to be known about him. Mm -hmm. And Seth feels like you need to know more about him to kind of let there be some sort of healing. And it's just a shame that he never gets that chance to heal. So we have to kind of take comfort enough from the fact that he is given at least one memory back at the end. But um, I'll let you chime in before I yeah. go any further, because I know that the next one will take me a while. So do you have well, anything to say in regards to that? Yeah, uh, I have a couple of responses, mm. uh, and I'll try to be as succinct as possible. You have more control than me, sir. Okay, fair enough. In some ways, I've, I've come to terms with the ending of his story, mm. because... For whatever reason, what happens with the Wendigo does seem to matter to him in a way that it mattered to Sana and Nadia, mm -hmm. even though he seemed to have more direct control of the first generations and the like that followed him, rather than um, implicit leadership the mm -hmm. way that Sana does. It, it's more like to him, the Wendigo are his foot soldiers rather than mm. his people. And so that puts a little bit of a different cast on it to me in terms of did he actually want what was best for them or was he just surrounding himself with them because he preferred the purity of their nature to the more chaotic humanity that he clearly seemed very angry at uh, mm. in regards to his interactions with humans 
in Arlington and, and Steamheart and everything like that. But he also seems to have some level of peace in giving his Wendigo, his people over to Sana's control and that she can bring them to a place where they can flourish at the end. Mm. And the other side of that, and the thing that makes me feel sympathy for him more than anything else, especially in regards to the fact that he has done some pretty dark stuff over mm. the course of New Century thus far. And, and you mm. know, therefore, there, there is some level of this is potentially just punishment for his actions and everything like that. But mm. it's clear that he's also been backed into a corner a little bit. Yeah. And it's that, that we're going to talk about this a little bit more. We're going to talk about the changing of the Wendigo threat as the changing being of the tide. The tide. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Because as related to us in this book, apparently the armed forces of Tremaine's army were exceptionally good at wiping out the Wendigo in the South. And that's part of the reason why Seth felt the way he did in terms of trying to gather um, his people to him and therefore accepting what Yagana suggested in terms of like, if you collect Krieger and Greta and bring them to this place, you will have what you desired. Yagana clearly took his fear and manipulated him into mm. being where she wanted so that things could play out in a way that she could benefit and then could take Greta's full endowment and give it over to Rasputin. So because it's like... Yagana takes something from all of the players involved. She just... Mm -hmm. Oh, it's almost like she sets them all in one place. So it's like, I'm going to take something from Seth. I'm going to take something from James. I'm going to take something from Rasputin. And it's all about just sort of getting the pieces in one place in mm -hmm. a dark reflection of how you do get the feeling that Mulane is trying to sort of set up different people to have different strengths and things so that they can be in a position to unify. It feels like Yagana is getting all the pieces in place so everything can disassemble in just the right way, at least for the time being. Mm -hmm. That could all change. Yeah, like, I, we still don't know what kind of fourth dimensional chess that she's actually playing mm -hmm. uh, and why she's playing it, but she is still moving pieces around and not from a selfless end, not mm. like Marlene is. So, yeah, but okay. So, so we're sorry to, to get back to, on the subject Seth, of Seth, the, uh, yeah. Wendigo being mm -hmm. backed into a corner. Yeah. One of the things that I brought up in an editorial aside in Panther soul was the idea that Alex expressed an interest at one point in a potential, future novel that had a Dracula feel uh, to it, like the original yeah. Bram Stoker's Dracula. Mm. And one of the things that I said as a result was, in some ways, technically, we might consider that we he already has in the form of Seth's story. Mm. Because while 
Bram Stoker's Dracula may do a better job of explaining how his titular character came to where he is to a certain degree. Uh, there's probably still a great deal of mystery surrounding how he became what he is in terms of being a vampire and can pass on his curse slash whatever you would call it to others to make more vampires and everything like that. And having a magnetism to him that kind of almost compels people towards his influence. Yeah, all of that feels like elements of Vlad Dracula and everything. Mm. It's just instead of beautiful women that he's turned into vampires that live in his castle with him, Seth lives in the open, surrounded by his uh, dire Wendigo and everything like that. And and so to a certain extent... Who needs a castle when you've got a manticore? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, uh, Brayoth is more impressive overall as a potential chariot or whatever, and unfortunately he is now gone as well. I'm actually um, kind of sad about that. Like, yeah. I I don't necessarily resent Briarf as much like chaos and damage as he has inflicted. He like, you get the sense that he was loyal, and mm-hmm. I know that. I think that I think uh, Alex said that if the Nag ever like conversed <laughs> with Briarf, he would conclude that he was an idiot, but. But, but I, the nag thinks everybody. Everyone is an idiot. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know like how much to infer from that. But mm-hmm. Rayoff being lost is very much one of those instances. I think that's what like the tragedy of Seth is that something unique, even something that is like an anomaly, it has a unique beauty to it. And so the death of something unique is tragic. It's something I often talk about about how in all of the Ray Harryhausen films, when the creature eventually dies, even if it's the source of destruction, there's this kind of sad quality to when the creature just falls over dead because the beauty of it and the beauty of the stop-motion craft involved in its articulation has become inert, and there's something deeply sad to that. You got to say something related about the experience of Seth in particular in terms mm. of like that she will never know his like again, that there was something special about him mm. specifically. And that's part of what makes the way his story ends a tragedy, even if he did do a lot of harm throughout his mm. exploration, and his desire to pursue his mm. goals and everything like that. But his death feels right, not only in the fact that like he's incompatible with humanity, but because mm. he is not good for the people. That, uh, no. that Sana is good for the people, that what they will achieve there will do some good. And the ending where they go through that gate, that wind gate, I love that phrase, by the way, mm, it's different mm, to mm. a wind door, it's the wind gate. Mm-hmm. It, the thing that comes to mind is Planet of the Apes. Have have mm. you seen the trilogy, each of the three I, films? I, I have seen the first one. I have been looking over and over again for like it to be available free on one of the streaming services that mm. I frequent. Yeah. Because I really want to see the culmination of that story. Um, and just haven't been able to yet. 
Give me, give me an address. I will get you the second and third film on Blu-ray. You, you need to see that. I'm. Uh, All right. That, that's the, honestly, that's fair. I'll accept that. I'll, yeah, uh, yeah. I'll, I'll contact you separately. Yeah. I'll give you an address because yeah. I, I really do just want to, like, with every mm. everything that Alex is always saying about that and how those stories are seminal to some of the stuff he does in New Century. This is like one of those mm. critical missing pieces mm. where I need to understand what was accomplished in those movies yeah. in order and, to get the full picture. And and separate to that, they're just great films. The conclusion of the third film reminded me of the conclusion here with the people, mm-hmm. where it feels like there is finally some sort of destination for mm-hmm. these people. And the, the dichotomy between Sana and Seth mm-hmm. evokes Caesar and Koba in mm-hmm. uh, the second film that it's not quite one-to-one, but it is mm-hmm. nevertheless, you get this feeling that Seth comes from a place of hurt mm-hmm. and that this is not the right figure to lead yeah. people who are early in their development and require some work. But one of my favourite parts in that of characterization for Cobra is when Caesar is saying don't pay any mind to the humans let them do their human work and the performance everyone often talks about Andy Serkis but I this can go in the edit but I I love the, the person who performs Cobra where at hearing the phrase human work just points at his various scars mm, and says, mm, mm. human work human work and then with a vindictiveness looks at caesar and with all of his backstory attached says human work toby did in fact send me the box set and by now i have watched dawn of the planet of the apes and seen those scenes toby talks about i do think seth is more complicated than koba and will have a more thorough deconstruction about his makeup when we get to him in arlington But Toby is right on when he suggests that there is a relationship between Sana and Caesar, and even though I had forgotten the exact conversation that led to him sending the box set to begin with, I found myself thinking again and again that I might have liked the movie even more if the apes had a female leader, rather than their society being male-dominated. In the meantime, I'm saving the third movie for when Maureen arrives, because she has actually not seen the third movie. And I think that's going to be a thing where we're going to watch it together. We're on a tangent, but my point of bringing that in is that this book in particular does give me Planet of the Apes vibes in, mm. and that trilogy, the Caesar trilogy. I, go- yeah, you, you just make me really want to say, like, I already understand enough of what I saw in Rise to mm. get the implication of the importance of what's going on there. And it yeah. really just makes me want to see those movies all the more as just to, mm. to see those interactions play out and everything. Yeah. I, I always get confused which one is which. There's uh Rise, Dawn, and I forget the War is one. the last one. War is the last one. Yes. Yeah, okay. So I'll Rise sure is the one have... I've seen. So yep. that that was will... literally the fall. Yeah, I will make sure that you have Dawn and War in your collection very soon. But yeah, to bring it back to the point of where the Wendigo are in this, and which is what brought the comparison to 
those films in the first place. I think that the confusion is that with how Thomas was talking about the situation that people were finding themselves in in America at the time that, like, not even the first edition, but the second edition of the handbook came out, which well, I'm I think sure is... That those, I don't think those numbers changed or anything like that. No. There were additions that were made to the book and maybe yeah. even some deletions as per the mm. what the handbook itself says. Mm. But they were making estimations based on the numbers that they had and the new revelation at the beginning of this book is that hey maybe these numbers are actually way off in this yeah. case way way off because yeah. it's like we York may is... have estimated a couple hundred thousand like uh if not millions mm -hmm. well i mean in terms of like I, I I re realized this as I went back into my second mm -hmm. reading of it, in that I was going back and like, okay, I'm comparing numbers to cartographers and then coming back and rereading this first chapter of Nightfall and being like, Oh, okay. So the implication I'm... is that not only was this potential population pared down a lot just by the Wendigo potentially on feeding uh, potentially feeding on people because some people get turned into Wendigo, and some are just Wendigo food. Cruel, mm -hmm. but I mean, it's it's the way to put it. But mm -hmm. that the overall implication is that that huge pop, whatever Wendigo population there was, just couldn't sustain itself. No. Um, and that many of them, as um, Rebecca supposes from her experience in the UK, simply died off either because of the elements or because there was simply not enough actual food to go around and everything mm. like that. Therefore, the population that remained in New York only was in the hundreds rather than even the thousands, such mm. as the 12,000 Wendigo that Curtis's forces went up against in D.C. Yeah. Um, but that level of population had stabilized or whatever in terms mm. of being able to hunt for sustenance among you know wildlife and such like and then on top of that so so much smaller population in new york making mm -hmm. it potentially easier for curtis's forces to actually fight particularly with the new weapons of the elaine on their side mm -hmm. but also just the overall impression of i maybe didn't have a good appreciation of just how many forces tremaine could pull to his banner mm. especially considering all these disparate groups that were mentioned in arlington that could potentially be in opposition to tremaine just based on you know being violent dangerous individuals but being violent dangerous individuals that tremaine couldn't like bring them into his following or anything like that mm -hmm. just like their opinions were different we still don't necessarily know how any of that stuff played out, but the fact that Tremaine has a big enough army that they were able to pose a significant threat to Wendigo numbers in mm -hmm. the South, and consider, like, okay, there were huge populations in the northern cities and everything like that, but the Wendigo started in Mississippi, and so therefore would have affected those populations more thoroughly at first. So the fact that 
Tremaine can pull this many people to his banner and field them and have them be a successful force against the Wendigo, which the RSA was already having trouble with, is kind of terrifying. Yeah, it's like, good news, we don't have to face the Wendigo, we just have to face Tremaine and his lot. Yeah. That's not good news at all. <laughs> That's, no, I, no. Could we go back to the Wendigo? Uh, uh-huh. Oddly enough, I found I was much more like amenable to a conversation with their previous leader than I am with Tremaine. So, yeah. you know, this is not great. Yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. Um, Sidebar, I mentioned this on my read-through live-tweeting session, but Uh I think that there is a sort of good symmetry to how the two potential Wendigo slash The People Mm. leaders are both names that are four letters long and begin with S. (laughs) Like Sana, Seth. Mm-hmm. I want to look into the etymology of Sana, especially because uh, our whole session began with us reflecting on the supposition that Sana would be called Nightfall. That mm-hmm. it's sort of, I'm curious to sort of do more digging into that. Although this is a spoiler, it's one that Alex has already shared in chat. And this is a full spoilers podcast anyway. Sana is actually a nickname for her given full name, which is a word that translates to sundown. So apparently we were right all along that Nightfall was technically also a reference to her name. I would have eventually talked about this as being part of Arlington, I suppose, but since we're already on the subject of comparing Seth to a Dracula narrative, Uh Seth was one of the... It's a biblical name, as I Mm. recall. And I forget exactly what relation to Noah he was, that it had... It wasn't Noah. It was um, it was actually uh, Adam and Third Eve. Third son of Adam and Eve and yes, brother of Cain and Abel. Right, exactly. Okay, that's what that connection that is. So he's sort of a little bit connected to the Cain and Abel story, but in a separate, different mythology, Seth was the first quote-unquote ghoul in terms of Vampire the Masquerade. For those not familiar, Vampire the Masquerade was a tabletop RPG that originated in the 90s from White Wolf Publishing, along with several others that centered around various mythical monsters like werewolves and changelings, and their integration into a modern urban fantasy setting. It was very big, with certain geeks and goths, as well as being part of a surge of general interest in the vampire mythos, as being a part of pop culture of the time. Versions of it and many of the other settings still exist today. I can't speak as to how popular they are in comparison now, but when I was in my 20s, they were huge. He was oh. he was given blood by Cain, who was the original source of the vampire curse as brought down upon him by Yahweh, so to speak. So he was the first person that was given vampire blood, so to speak, in order to make him a charmed servant of Cain. But he was also known as the first mage, as far as Mage of the Ascension is concerned. This is part of the mythology, anyway. These stories often don't necessarily explore this thoroughly, since 
you know, mm. this is even older than some of the other ancient vampires that they often refer to as the antediluvians and everything like that. But I, I suspect that Seth was very deliberately picked as a name for that character, invoking at least some elements of this. At the very least, probably very well aware of Seth as being an important name in biblical mythology and perhaps to a certain extent also Egyptian mythology, like Set, yes. the, uh, the serpent god and everything like mm. that. So, yeah, just one of those side thoughts that I had and therefore connected with his story. And everything mm. like that. But, but please, go to. I think I may have actually reached a end point of it, I suppose. <laughs> Is there any more you would like to cover in regards to Wendigo population and them being backed into a corner and logistics of that? Well, it felt confusing overall when it actually happened because uh -huh. we had gone through most of New Century mm -hmm. sort of understanding that the Wendigo threat, at least on this side of the ocean, was going to continue to be an ongoing problem because as of the end of Steamheart, the whatever negotiation they'd had with Seth had broken down on their side because of the closing of Saitash. But between Steamheart and now, so many other things have happened off to one side that mm. has not really gotten into what the Wendigo populations were doing. Because first we had the Uncivil, Uncivil Outlaw, Outlaw, which is all about White chasing down James and mm. Abigail. And then Stone Spring Maidens revolves all this all this stuff happening in autumn. Mm. And therefore, we don't know at all what's going back on in Century, that yeah. whole sort of thing. And then the third book after that is Panther Soul, which has absolutely nothing to do with Century. The gaze has been very much off the Wendigo for a couple mm -hmm. of books now. And yeah. also with Uncivil Outlaw, it makes complete sense that the Wendigo don't necessarily feature in that as much as they are trekking across America mm -hmm. and it's a chase narrative. All of the members of like that chase have means of kind of circumventing the issue of just traveling across land and being watchful for Wendigo, whether it's just wind doors, a flying horse, thundercloud, mm -hmm. or just all of these things that I think is probably an indication that at this point, the population sort of getting reducing in size over time makes sense. I think the surprise is that it was happening as quickly as it was. I think it's also that in conjunction with the fact that at this point, technology was already going the way of maybe leaning in humanity's favor of finding ways around the Wendigo threat. And Especially have... with the team up of the Elaine. Exactly. That was what I was going to say is that with the Elaine, like the Elaine are almost like are turning out to be potentially similar to how the Dwarts mm -hmm. and Akka were in the British Isles, that like salvation comes from another world and they may have aspirations of their own. I think for the time being, the Elaine are much more sort of an alliance with humanity, but there's clearly forces at work on the other side that maybe yeah. want to tip the scales a little bit more into their side. So I think the comparison is absolutely there. But um, 
With all of that in play, it just feels like the technology and just the state of the population at this time, it really does feel like it makes sense when you take a step back that the war is not going well in the Wendigo or the people's favor. But Mm -hmm. as you say, because how the sort of initial hook of New Century that I think all of us have used is very much the like, oh, it's a bit like werewolf slash zombie narrative set in 19th century America is the in, and then we have yeah, so many other things. Yeah, literally World War Z. Yeah, and we say, uh, there's also purple tigers and fantasy Victorian London and crystal punk lesbians, and there's just, there's a lot of great stuff all over, and so it comes as a surprise and that's why this book especially for being a shorter one feels like wow everything is riding on the next 200 pages so this is all going in an energetic direction i'm not entirely sure of the destination it's are you talking about in terms of your own words then i'm talking about in my own words but hey i guess maybe it applies to the book itself but um... well okay so here here's my thoughts And again, these are more fully baked now than they were Mm. back when I first read the book. Whereas I am half-baked through and through. (laughs) Well, the thought that I have... Half-baked takes for Toby. I'll stop interrupting. That's just going to be a thing now with you. Like, you're waiting until for me to talk, and then you're going to cut in with a joke again. That's just going to be part of your brand now, isn't it? Are you done? <laughs> oh, you're just going to leave. Me Absolutely now. not. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I... uh, all right. So I'm done. The thing of significance here, I think, and I, I, we won't necessarily know a potential answer to this until we get Alex on the horn again and start being able to ask Q and A's of his most recent books and everything like that. But phase one of New Century had a very specific kind of focus overall in terms of the overriding threat. And Mm. now that threat is being supplanted with much more nuanced and complicated outside forces because we already Mm. had the potential complication for the U.S. as regards Coriolanus's expansion. But Mm. then again, Coriolanus may not have bothered to care all that much on what's on the other side of the Atlantic, because that may involve bringing his forces too far abroad to something that it would be harder to control overall. Therefore, the interest that you might have... Yeah, the interest that he might have would be specifically on Europe being the closest and then maybe expanding on from there in a new Dwarf empire and everything like that. Here, as we have already alluded to, there is a new wind door with a new expansionist power that is potentially going to be causing complications for the RSA, as well as whatever results from the conflict between the new risen South, so to speak, and the RSA, and more importantly, especially after the events of this story in particular, 
the RSA isn't even particularly friendly. The, the government of the RSA, at least the people in power, aren't particularly friendly to our heroes mm -hmm. because they have more complicated values in place that they're trying to protect that McPherson is a threat to, basically. And, mm -hmm. you know, who knows how anybody is trying to play off anybody else in terms of whether McPherson feels like he can come to some kind of accord with Tremaine and thereby stave off uh, a conflict with them, whether he thinks he can reunify with them, even though reunification with them would be not good at all for certain kinds of people, one would feel. Mm. And the whole idea of does McPherson actually feel that he can maintain some level of autonomy when he's facing crystal punks in the world of autumn and everything like that. Um, mm. So what is basically happening is that a stage is being set for a very different kind of conflict with canny opponents mm. overall, rather than the more existential threat of the Wendigo as established all the way back in the cartographer's handbook. You know, on reflection, I think I should have anticipated this, mm. given how Steamheart progressed. Because, like, as you say, phase one has this feeling of we have a goal. Like, there is a sort of clear threat and a clear goal slash solution to it, is that when they go are coming through wind doors and it's fucking everything up, we need to plug the hole and, like, stop the further spread of infection and that will make some sort of positive difference that's kind of like a hollywood sky portal laser thing sort of <laughs> set up but in steamheart the wind door is closed that's like or wind multiple wind doors actually but the like one of the main portals in question is closed about halfway, two-thirds of the way through, mm -hmm. and there's a whole lot of stuff after that is kind of the climax of that story that's meant to be the climax of phase one. And it becomes much more of, like, the biggest threat that costs the most to our group of heroes is a threat that wasn't the original one you considered. That mm -hmm. it was something from within your own borders it was from within by the end of it it's a case of a bit like the end of this book you say like were we successful in our mission and mm -hmm. they both were and they weren't it's not a avengers assemble 2012 neat solution of saying yes we absolutely did defend the earth the avengers experiment was a success in both and in-universe narrative point of view and in a meta the avengers storytelling experiment like it succeeded and in steamheart the story it's shown that the conflict and the threat to this world's survival and thriving is not just a single fixed point that mm. you address it's something that will evolve will surprise and you kind of have to continuously assess it. 
the goalposts keep moving. The goalposts keep moving. And... But not necessarily as a result of specifically a malevolent force, but different tides shifting against each other, mm. opening up new complications. Yeah, and some of them will be actively malevolent in a sort of... Someone like Yagana feels like a very, mm-hmm. like as we said earlier, the amount of lives that she is negatively affecting is almost inc- incalculable. But it's multiple tides for different motivations. And even Seth, like his end goal was kind of got redefined as a result of Steamheart. And even in phase one, the state of the Wendigos and how we perceive them changed. We didn't necessarily anticipate from Secret Rooms, Let Them Go, or Cartographer's Handbook that a temporary truce with the Wendigos would ever be on the table. But it was, and by the end of Phase 1, they essentially nullify it. So the developments are becoming more complicated, but you're still able to follow them because each of these multiple fronts gets their own book. It gets a... Like, Uncivil Outlaw is that civil war. It's Mm -hmm. that, oh shit, the threat is this disunion among ourselves. Mm -hmm. In Stone Spring Maidens, it's somewhat of a continuation of that, but it's also this sort of, you're trying to, with tenderness, see if the experiment of unity between these two worlds can work. And two very sweet characters prove that it absolutely can and beautiful stuff can happen as a result of that. But dark stuff can also result as well, unfortunately. Exactly. Each book is showing these different fronts. It's dedicating time to it, which means that it doesn't become like too confusing or like too many things at once. But you know what all of this is feeling like. And as I say this, it's like, if these books are sort of therapy for us and more primarily therapy for Alex, a world where it once upon a time felt like you could put all your energy into achieving something Mm -hmm. and you could trust that that would make a positive difference. And as you go on, as the world changes, as more complexities get added, from multiple destinations and at one point you now know you can't even trust the institutions that you can't escape from Mm. that they are not on your side that you kind of have to foster your own group of people who can do something about it that it has to be that even if it's almost too much at times it's that conversation in the definitive edition of secret rooms of it's too much there's too much hurt, and how can that be righted? And it's about doing what good you can in the places you can. New Century has to be spread across multiple fronts because all of the problems of all of these worlds can't be solved by one person or a group of people in one area. It has to be the efforts of people doing what they can, where they can, across multiple frontiers. Yeah, that's kind of the reason why I've come to the conclusion overall that I'm actually fine with moving the Wendigo off the page as being the existential threat in favor of Mm. these other more complicated forces is actually 
it makes more sense for the story overall, and it definitely makes sense in regards to the kinds of stuff that might be going on in Alex's head, particularly in regards to real-world events and analogies and everything like that. Mm. But the other thing that I have to say is that, obviously, he's heavily influenced by the MCU at this point. And given how you know everyone is more coming into their own and everything like that in terms of the forces that people can marshal in 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 order to defeat enemy forces and bring stability back to the world the good kind of stability not the stability of the grave so to speak mm. the only thing that i have inside my head and i'm feel certain that some variant of it is inside Alex's head as well, is just a future confrontation with our heroes, but in particular, someone I don't know who yet, uh, maybe it's the um, general of the Elaine facing off against James and going, I have an army. And James opens a portal and goes, we have a Smileotron. And then just watching that play out right there. Um, <laughs> and just Lyra going, Lyra smash! <laughs> uh, okay. It, I, I feel so much better now because I've able to come back and bring this level of joy and energy mm. based on my overall appreciation with what this book has done and what is going to come down the pike uh, in terms of future stories and everything like that. It feels uh, facetious for me to say, oh, I'm so looking forward to the next new century book. Like, oh, yeah, you don't fucking say it, Toby. <laughs> like, uh, but like, even, it does bear mentioning that I think after this conversation of us just sort of reflecting on like what the tide of phase two has been and just us kind of putting Nightfall into perspective and more of the details will come forward. Like I want to have conversations about Nadia and just mm -hmm. like all of this stuff and the particularities of how Sana and her people and the opening and the epilogue are sort of set up. But I think that that can wait for the sort of deep dive on that book. For now, Nightfall and our reflections on it and the rest of Phase 2 has me so excited mm. to see what back in time will be because the pieces are all set up and I just, what, I, I just, a bit like what you were saying when you were saying that like when you have a book, you just need to know what happens next. <laughs> I'm in that place now. Yeah. How is it that, like, I had coffee like two hours ago and new century is my coffee. Damn it. <laughs> well, I, I honestly, I can't, I can't really imagine yet what's going to be going on with Abigail as a part of her story, because it's going to involve interactions in a world that we barely know what it's going to be like yet. We have, implications mm. based on the the small hints that we gathered at the very end of uncivil outlaw and everything like that but 
Alex has been playing his cards very close to his vest in terms of how back in time is going to play out. The thing that I have to imagine is that the natural inclination is to believe that whatever Earth she's currently on is more likely to be a no-magic, high-technology, but like our level of technology rather than crystal Mm. technology. Yeah. And actually, in regards to tech, not even necessarily our current levels. Alex let it slip at one point that the starting date was going to be 2003. That's Bush era, the middle of the West Wing show. No smartphones, no Facebook or Twitter, and the internet is still in its pre-adolescence in comparison to what it would become. In the new His Dark Materials show, Will Perry had a full-on smartphone, even if it doesn't make that much of a difference with regards to the tools his world can bring to bear. And how is she going to get along in that world? How is she going to find a way to come back from it because she doesn't have any of the potential touchstones or resources that she would have in a different world like Rama and everything like that, mm-hmm. where magic is is a known quantity and sort of accepted to a certain degree. Yeah, there's no researchers who have a vested interest in this because there was not a Thomas putting people like uh, Jeremy in positions where they could like actually put stock in that. But by the same token... The thing is that we honestly don't actually know how any of that is going to play out, because even though the only person that we know for certain is going to be showing up in that story is Abigail herself, we don't know that other characters won't somehow show up Mm. in order to influence, because it's entirely possible that someone like Merlane could possibly show up if she chooses to intervene and she does have a personal connection to Abigail, which means Mm -hmm. that might be something that's coming down the pike. And on top of that, just because we think there are no magical elements in this future Earth doesn't necessarily mean that, because we also thought for a while that Century didn't actually have any magic in it as well, that everything supernatural potentially came from another world as a result of the portals and everything like that. Merlane came from Kelidor and potentially mm. Yagana did as well. We don't know for certain where Yagana co- has come from, but with the events of Nightfall of the Wendigo, we've now established that there are in fact orbs present in Century that specifically Nadia excuse me, that Sana and her mother found, and that part of that power then passed into Nadia as a result of that whole interaction and everything like that. Mm. So potentially there is still more magic that is indigenous to Century out there that does not come from an outside source like the Dwarf Firecasters or Spellcasters coming from Rama or anything else like that. Never mind that Rasputin, who is only purported to be a sorcerer in our world, is very possibly actually one here. I just had a thought. Mm. I was just thinking of, like, okay, what characters in different parts of, like, Century would be fun to see if they just stumbled across an endowment? And you know who came to mind? 
Mm. You know who can take my just imagine this person with an endowment. The black shock. Oh god. <laughs> he's but he's supposed to be a Batman analog. That wouldn't work at all for his personal character arc. Well, this is I kind of want to see it because it would just be like him trying to play it off or like just like he completely redefines his like whole image because it's like well I guess I can't do this. Like the man uh, I I can't I I need to prepare. I need to have like a script prepared for Black Shark. I'll remember oh, that one doing and that Cut myself wait, off so, there. I don't want to give the game away. <laughs> so wait, am I actually going to have to have you do the recording for the Black Shuck when we do the opening for, I guess, season five? It's going to be you know Princess what? Thieves. You know what? Maybe <laughs> we should do it that we're both trying to do it. Like, wait, I thought I was the Black Shuck. Like, uh, we had talked about this. It was me. And that plays into the whole meta thing of Princess Thieves. <laughs> Okay, we'll script it out. We'll script it out. We'll yeah, figure yeah. it out. We'll figure, out <laughs> we'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, and it will just sound like through the through the window. Yeah, I think we managed it in the end. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> okay, I'm even more excited about that one. Like obviously, well, I guess it doesn't hurt for us to be speculating a little bit about the stuff that's going on with. Abigail in the alternate Earth and back in time, because obviously we, we simply don't know. No, but and uh, like he'll surprise us, and I don't ask for much. I'm perfectly happy to see where this goes, as we've established with this conversation. Mm -hmm. But if I can get one thing out of back in time, it's the hope of more of that wonderful artwork, but of Abigail in a Nickelback shirt. <laughs> Well, I'm sure that she'll she's going to come up with her own very specific uh, fashion accessories for the cover of Back in Time and everything like that. Mm. Oh God! And she doesn't even have her hat anymore. No, Remember, that's it, right. It, it that was the head. so she mm. will, unless she gets a new unless she gets a new hat. I mean, she could, but maybe that wouldn't necessarily be her style because the hat of power that was her father's mm. hat. So it's like it would have to be a meaningful it would have yeah. to be a meaningful encounter of a different type that's just mm -hmm. like yeah I don't know and I mean we don't know that it could literally be anything mm -hmm. but what if Abigail forms like a meaningful relationship with someone in the time she's been over there because like nothing's stopping her like what supporting cast might we see like will she keep to herself will she like make friends like i don't know i don't know greg and i gots to know you got to know we we, we both got to know i um, gotta get back in time <laughs> gotta get back in time bow, 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 bow. gotta get back in time yeah. Okay, I have no idea what that was. Um, well, no, we, we know exactly what that it was. It was wonderful. That's what it was, Greg. It's honestly, it feels a little bit like the kind of energy that I bring to some of my um, daily conversations with Maureen when we're just catching up on what's going on in each other's life and one of us will just suddenly burst into song or whatever uh, in just a completely ridiculous tangent. Um, uh, uh, that's wonderful. <laughs> just, just a little bit of personal details there that... that uh, make with the heartwarming there, huh? Um, 
Yeah, as just just briefly a little bit more on that regards. If it's anything at all like Lyra Silvertongue's adventures in modern Oxford as established in his Dark Materials, then it makes me wonder if we're going to find out that there is a scientific explanation for the multiverse that somebody might actually be studying in Mm. in this other Earth and everything like that. And so therefore she is, in fact, going to get help from knowledgeable scientists or other forces that understand this Mm. in a way different to the way that she's experienced it thus far. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because her ability isn't going to be of much use to her here all that she closed doors yeah although she's also she is also like got her shield and everything like that so that's that's not nothing yeah no it's not Mm. nothing uh it's going to give her durability and protection and everything like that and also potentially whatever utility use that she is able to get out of it like she was able to experiment with uh in certain parts of uncivil outlaw and everything and let's not forget that she was able to see auras with her starlit eye, so that could come into play as well. But yeah, the hype is real. It, it seems like it might come out relatively soon, like within uh, within a few weeks and everything like that. So mm. fingers crossed. We, like you gotta you gotta be ready for the show. He's tricksy like that. You never know when he's going to just surprise you with a like shadow drop of just. Books out now. <laughs> <laughs> you can't keep getting away with this. Yes, he can. Um, he can and he will. So, bringing it back to our discussion of this book as we're sort of winding down a little here, do you have any further thoughts that you want to share in terms of the immediate hot takes? Obviously, as you mentioned not all that long ago, we'll have our eventual thorough breakdown of it although we still have a long way to go before we actually get there and on top of that now that we've had our discussion about seth in general one of the things proposed at one point is if we were to learn more about his backstory Mm -hmm. is there anything in particular that we would want to know to sort of give some final closure to his story. And after mining out our complicated feelings with all of that, Mm. I find myself a little bit unsure about whether we actually need anything more from Seth. Like I've terms with Mm -hmm. his story being over, even if it feels like there are more things that we could learn. That he's almost defined by being at a loose end that mm-hmm. he to me like for Seth he's an embodiment of pure focus and that's why he becomes this like sort of mirror or like a inversion that's so suitable to Thomas in yeah. Arlington because that particular point where he and Thomas have that conversation on the rooftop is where the disunity of man is just so sharply like out there. It's just so unavoidable. And Seth just comes along and makes it plain. There is no disunity. 
in what I have going with me and my people. Mm-hmm. Like, he is controlling the tide of the Wendigo, that they all move. They may be moving as his sort of, like, arms and his fists to a certain extent, which is why Sana is much more suited to being a protector of them as a people. But nevertheless, Seth focuses the Wendigo, whereas mm-hmm. Arlington desperately wants to do that with the humanity of America, but they are actively going against that. And that's going to be some interesting conversations that we're going yeah. to have when we get to Arlington. Mm. This, this this is all good fodder for yeah. that later conversation. But yeah. for Seth himself, like that's him in opposition to Arlington, but for him just in general of like that focus is almost like it's not compromised to me. It's actually somewhat enhanced by the fact that he most likely doesn't necessarily know what started all of this. Mm-hmm. It's that he has conviction. That's another thing that defines Seth to me is that he will and has paid the price multiple times to mm. the end. And even if he doesn't necessarily have that like clarity of a lifetime of experiences that sort of directs him into the one thing he knows he wants to achieve, like Thomas would have, he nevertheless sees it through. He knows that this will cost him everything mm-hmm. and he does it anyway. He knows that like the man or whatever he was all that time ago is long gone and that it's paid, but he never expresses uncertainty or regret about that he stays to that conviction and i think that that's his defining element whether we find out more about him or not that remains and i think that means that he has a really suitable place here in new century so when you ask me if there's anything else i need to hear from him i want to choose my words carefully because The whole point with this is that we know that Alex will hear these words and I trust him well enough to know that he would never like change things just because we tweeted once that it may go in this direction Mm. or we would like it to go in that direction. But nevertheless, I want to sort of choose my words carefully here. I would be fascinated to learn more about Seth, but given his purpose and what he embodies here... I don't need that. I think whatever I want to see more of Seth is basically whatever of him is relevant to whatever future story we may find out more about him in. So that's maybe a non-committal answer, but if I can boil it down, it's just Seth is defined by his actions, and I think that that remained to Mm -hmm. the end. Yeah, it's true. It's it's the effect that he had on the world around him, and now that he is quote-unquote gone, he has stopped having an effect on the world around him. And whatever his motivations were, are sort of, did you quoted Blade Runner earlier, are sort of lost to mm. a degree. And since the focus of His the story is do shifting... have a similarity, actually, mm. just that final point. yeah. Maybe this is just a a final terminus to that particular story and that we don't actually need 
any future stuff. Although the one thing that does occur to me is that the thing that Seth wanted of Greta specifically was to open up a portal to a world where Seth had already succeeded, meaning mm. that there would be an alternate version of Seth out there somewhere and making me wonder about like what kind of conversation that would be between two versions of Seth and everything like that. Oh, yeah, I exactly. Just made a realize, I just made a realization. Finish your thought and I'll deliver mm -hmm. an additional. Okay. <laughs> One of the things that we haven't come across yet, except in very loose metaphysical terms, mm -hmm. is the idea of coming across an alternate universe version of these characters yes that has been suggested so far in at least a couple places in the books and everything like that such Retta as mentions. greta mentions alternate gretas yes mm. as well as alternate seths in what seth mm. is asking of her and everything like that mm. so it makes me wonder about the possibility of a version of seth that remembers what he is or never became what mm. he is oh. in an alternate reality and everything like that. And that, that could be we, a character in the future. And yeah, that, that we, actually... we learn more about Seth through what an alternate version of him did. And that's a compelling like that. possibility. Yeah. I like I say, I'm not demanding that be the case, but that is mm -hmm. a compelling possibility that it's on the table. Mm -hmm. But um I like that. I, I like that a lot. The thought I had a minute ago when I just went like, oh, and all of that, <laughs> just to give you a play-by-play, -play, is that Seth having this plan or this like urge to find a parallel version of him who has won and to use some of that strength is so fitting because he is a character who will take from himself, he will like give up parts of himself in order to achieve his goals and that even extends to going to another version of him and drawing resources from that to achieve his own ends mm -hmm. yeah as a final coda for now to our discussion of seth let me say this if there is one thing that New Century has had a dearth of thus far, is any long-running villains slash antagonists. Most of the opponents have been introduced and dispensed with in the same book. And even those antagonists that are still around, like Tremaine or Coriolanus, we've only seen a little of them, and therefore they haven't really been developed enough to be that interesting as opponents. Indeed, both of the two mentioned have only been in one book apiece. Seth is the only antagonist that has been present in multiple books, and was intriguing and nuanced enough that I at least wanted to see more, know more, understand his story. When Toby and I say that we don't need to know more about him, but we would like to if it's relevant, all of that is true. But the flip side of that is, would knowing more make a difference now? His story is done. There's no more potential for growth of any kind, no more interactions to be had, and so therefore the revelation of backstory to put his actions into context would not seem to really move the story forward overall. And more importantly, there's no one left on this side of the world to take his place. Yagana is likely to remain mysterious and unknowable, 
and is not an antagonist on the same level as Seth anyway. Rasputin's story might be intriguing, but is unlikely to pay off any time soon due to his interests being elsewhere. Never mind that he was just a looming presence in Nightfall. Tremaine is still around, but it remains to be seen how he will develop, and we know very little about Hera Rubinox of the Elaine. White is gone, Colonel Herbert is one note, and the quality of antagonists just goes down from there. Even many of those no longer with us. Perhaps this is meant to say something about the kinds of stories Alex wants to tell. Certainly, I'm not one of those people that is interested in fetishizing villains, especially not over heroes. But Seth was as much a compelling component as many of the other long-running characters thus far. And therefore, I am sorry to see his story come to an end, even if his arc was brought to a proper close. <sighs> this is this is another great book. This just... yeah, honestly, I'm at the end of the day, I'm kind of I'm kind of with you on that because yeah. even for any misgivings that I have, and even mm. for the fact that it may not hit the same emotional sweet spots. That mm. Panther Soul and Stone String Maidens did. I'm just so really happy overall with the arc mm. of what this brings to the story. Yeah. And the fact that it does shake things up. Obviously, the third act, Rasputin, still just sort of like, you know, I'm still coming to terms with that a little bit. But yeah. at least, based on our earlier conversation, it feels like it makes sense in some fashion in terms of, like, mm -hmm. that there are other power players on the other side of the world that mm -hmm. are doing their own things, and they just happen to come here because this is where the resources were that they could tap into in order to achieve their own ends on their side of the globe and everything like that. I have... A couple of things like points to raise that I don't necessarily know what they imply but it does feel possibly relevant to Rasputin okay. Nadia is also Russian mm. she is mm. described to have that accent so could there be some sort of connection of why was Rasputin drawn to this place it may be that Yagana like guided him to this spot but could there have been a pre-existing awareness of what was going on and what the deal was in New York. And secondly... I yeah, I don't know. I'd have to take a closer look. I'm mm, remembering what the deal with Nadia's story was, because I think mm, there was heritage there, but I don't think she came from Russia. From Russia. No, that's it, true. It so feels that far may be... more likely. It feels mm. far more likely that Yagana reached out to him or that potentially yeah. he reached out to Yagana because mm -hmm. he's still a sorcerer. Yeah. And so therefore would have the resources to make contact with something mm. like Yagana. And Yagana would be like, I can use this. Let's go with it. Yeah, I, I, I feel relatively certain that everything that happened there was probably an arrangement either mm. spurred by Yagana herself or spurred by Rasputin looking for an answer to his problems and making contact with Yagana, who is like, okay, let's make a deal. But go on with the rest of your thoughts. Well, the other one is probably like half-baked takes from Toby, but um, 
And now a new section of our story, half-baked cakes with Toby. Yeah. The silent one is another somewhat sorcerer with Mm. a Russian accent. (laughs) Yeah, but we also know... Question mark? <laughs> we also know that at one point she was supposed to sound like Yoda. So I I uh I think that you're you're really reaching. Yeah, yeah, point. yeah. I mean oh. come on. Like th- this can't be like the reactionary like part of our show without some like mm-hmm. I, this may even be this, like a genuine section mm-hmm. of like future news of the century episodes <laughs> is half baked takes is like that's the point. This is reactionary. The <laughs> full thought comes with when I have notes and yeah. don't rely on an excess of caffeine and endorphins. That's not true. I always rely from endorphins. Positivity is good, people. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm just, I'm just very happy with the overall arcs of this story. We mm. went into this being very afraid for our main characters and thinking like as has already been discussed, that there would be a cost to what happened, and there was, mm-hmm. but mm. that James, like, I think we always sort of knew that James's arc was going to continue, but the Rebecca's arc has come to a new place mm. because she has now taken on an endowment herself, mm. and what are the implications going to be for her further exploration of this and her part in not only the fight against the forces of evil, so to speak, but in mm. terms of what is it going to be like for her to suddenly be a telepath and deal with other people's minds in her head, other people's voices in her head, especially considering what she went through all the way back and let them go, where she was having parts of her own mind potentially Oh speak my God! <laughs> And I'm also very happy that if Frank had to be brought back into the story, that he might eventually come to a place where he not may not be the same Frank as we had experience with in phase one, but that even without Annie, that he can find some way to heal and mm. return to a better version of himself, I guess you could say. That he hasn't like cast aside every part of who he was and that he as well as that he's managed to pick up a little bit of what he lost from Annie by just mm-hmm. like even if it came down to just something as simple as seeing a version of her again just getting at least that little sliver of that mm-hmm. is enough of a spark to help yeah because i don't know if butler's grief would be or that his like the trauma of losing Annie would be any different or any less severe if Butler was there with Annie at the end but I think it's certainly the sudden intangibility of seeing Abigail asking what happened to Annie and just knowing that the worst had happened Mm. and it just happened so quickly that like Abigail like breaks his world in an instant and he is taken from him so suddenly that it feels like all of her was taken from him that he couldn't get that closure and he doesn't necessarily have closure here but he gets at least a little bit of 
the incalculable like amount that was taken from him back that's something meaningful yeah yeah i'm <laughs> yeah. I, i'm thoroughly wound down at this point i uh mm. th this is what happens with our conversations i think it may be news of the century more than anything else but uh, are you saying that a season of through the wind door condensed into like one <laughs> episode has a intensified effect on us i am shocked shocked <laughs> Yeah. Well, not yeah, that shocked. Fair enough. Well, it was not that shocked. Yes, exactly. So, so that's us. That's uh, us. As the as the saying goes, and I think I'm happy with where we eventually came to, as mm -hmm. far as our feelings about this book and our mining out our intense emotional reactions and our immediate hot takes and everything like that. After this, uh, we're going to be heading right back into, I guess it's going to be our final Skype recording on cartographer's handbook at which point the next one after that uh, two recordings later is going to be our thoughts on chapters one through four of arlington which you already have the notes that i provided on and just waiting for mm -hmm. your potential additions to it i've and gone through uh, the chapters of arlington and uh, will slowly uh, add to notes at key moments of time mm-hmm Thanks for joining us on this wild and woolly journey. And that's the way it is. <laughs> I have no sign off. Yeah, okay, yeah. Way to end on a high note, Toby. In retrospect, I am slightly disappointed with the fact that we didn't manage to bring much meaningful discussion of Sana or Nadia into the mix. Sure, their stories are likely over, but they were just as much a part of Nightfall of the Wendigo, and they kind of got overshadowed by everything else. As it seems clear, Toby and I were pretty happy with the rest of it, and those two characters will eventually get their time in the sun. News of the Century is supposed to be all about our immediate reactions and thoughts, after all, and as it is, this conversation was already extra long, by dint of the fact that technical issues required us to have two Skype sessions in order to cover the topics we've already wanted to discuss. There's plenty of fun outtakes to come, but to close us out, I return us to an old favorite artist, and a song that I grew up with as a child. To make up for a lack of discussion on her character, I give you a piece that makes me think about Sana and her future with her people. Until next time, this is John Denver with The Eagle and the Hawk.
It says you're recording the call, so I guess as long as someone's recording the call. Yeah, I forget out to the last one. Did we get two, or was it just one? No, we just, we just got one, but I mean, it, it, I, I'm pretty sure as, it worked okay. Um, as long as someone is recording it. Yes, also, exactly. so it's recorded. I can't do it. This is why I record these things. <laughs> in, in point of fact, I'll just, in fact... Uh, uh, just find the music and then just put it in as being part of the outtakes. Um, yeah. Because that's how I fucking roll. To be um, honest, you could just have it as the like little thing that connects each bit. Like, <laughs> It's true, um, actually. I could absolutely do that. There's so many moments and elements to the story. I don't want that to be the takeaway that like, it was Rasputin all along. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Now we're just having f- fractally shifting memes and everything like that. I mean, I don't know exactly how much, how many outtakes we're going to have, but I mean, we're talking right now, so I guess this is definitely going to go on the outtake reel. I'm going to make a note of like pretty much what we talked about and mm-hmm. like kind of like uh, like I would for our show notes anyway. I'll send that to you ahead of our session on Saturday and then literally like pick up with this energy i'll do the whole coffee thing and all of that <laughs> all right fair enough fair enough <laughs> this has been a damn good show by the way and yeah what no, i might do I, is I, I needed this and i think yeah. you needed it too honestly so oh it's great yeah i i think that we've i was worried because when i finished i was like i don't know what to feel about this but i feel like you've helped me to put some things into Mm -hmm. focus i've helped you to sort of like get some things into focus and it's also allowed us to kind of put the things that we already were certain about like into the light and it's it's great Mm -hmm. i'm glad that we could talk about this today with with full just just bulldozing forward, to use a term that you should be fairly familiar with at this point. Um, I, I, I've heard someone use it. I like, can't place it, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, I like this dynamic because yeah. you, uh, you are yawning. I have coffee in my system. I feel its effects. Uh, I am ready. Mm. Well, that's the thing, is that I, the second I was like, oh, shit, I almost overslept, I suddenly, the adrenaline was pumping through my system. So now I, I don't, while I don't have actual caffeine going through my system, I have something else, which is, which is, which is drawing and giving me fire. Uh, and you were asking me a second ago what I was uh, having. Yes. Um, well, it's a, it's a kind of a little bit of a tradition for us to have brunch-ish foods. Mm-hmm. That we usually we used to go out for brunch for this sort of thing, but then COVID changed everything. Uh, honestly, 
Um, and oh, I just realized that we have a real life, then everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. It's okay. taken me a year to realize that, but oh. Uh -huh. Anyway, you were telling me about what you had before the COVID yeah. nation attacked. So very often they will have pancakes or some other brunch type food. Uh, I like pancakes just fine, but I don't mm. usually eat them unless someone specifically makes them for me. Like right. when you go to a restaurant, you're basically, you can request whatever you want. And so therefore I tend to have like eggs or an omelet or something like that. And the kinds mm. of things that go with that, like some meat and some bread product uh, and some hash fries, you know, whatever potato thing often goes with these things. Um, yeah, we we can we tend to call that the full English breakfast, but it's not mm -hmm. occurred to me until now if that's actually something exclusive to the British diet. I guess we just well, assume anything with lots of oil is the English way. There are some places out here that actually provide uh, mm -hmm. what's called an English breakfast, but they're they're going a little bit further in terms of what's actually there, in terms of like blood pudding. And stuff ah, like that, yes. and that the, the, so there are some purely English things that we don't necessarily have everywhere on this side of the pond, um, and I wouldn't necessarily go out of my way to have or anything like that because I've, I've heard about blood pudding and I'm I'm not exactly sure that I would enjoy it. Um, Greg, I've heard about people who have brunch without black pudding on their plate and they're cowards. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, no. fair enough. No, but uh, you're, that is just a line I fully understand, and uh, I am very partial to it, but it is not a, like, regular uh, feature of the plate, because then I would be dead. Yeah, fair enough. But on top of everything else, like, we still refer to um, certain kinds of potato as fries, whereas you properly call it chips on the other mm. side of, of the pond. Um, so I had chips so to speak, with um, a turkey Reuben, basically. I am very partial to Reubens of all kinds. I was actually just saying this earlier to Maureen, that mm. it doesn't actually matter what kind of meat is on there. You can have your traditional Reuben with some corned beef or mm. some pastrami or, you know, the way they make it now, sometimes these days without rut red meat, uh, turkey, which is what I had. But it's the combination of that meat and pumpernickel or a good rye, plus Thousand Island dressing, horseradish. You put mm. all that together, I'm just like, yes, please, put that in my face right now. And these days, like, I'll sometimes switch it up and actually have an omelet or whatever. But in mm. this particular place, makes a very good Reuben sandwich. So mm. that's what I had this time. And when it when it's on offer, I will often go for a good Reuben as being my meal of choice. That's that's a good one. I I think if I'm getting a uh, brunch uh, takeout, I will often try and get something that's like scrambled eggs with smoked salmon on some sort of like mm. bagel or toast. That's the good stuff. If I'm making it myself, it tends to default to scrambled eggs, occasionally fried eggs. But every time I try, the yolk just breaks apart, and it's like, okay, well, I guess this is uh, turning into an omelet now. That's that's fine. That's what this is. Um, but yeah, scrambled eggs is my go-to, and mm -hmm. then it's just a variety of things. If I want it to just be kind of like 
oh, like we want to do stuff today it'll be like the bread and like a few things but if it's like uh we're not planning on doing anything for mm-hmm. until like five o'clock in the evening let's go the full the full english as they say <laughs> fair enough yeah, I, I, yeah. I suppose i am a full english after <laughs> that um And in order for that message to make sense, let me rem- let me rem- Here, Toby was discussing the recent experience of listening to our raw recordings and then comparing and contrasting it with whatever edited finished product I create and share with him just before releasing. It's kind of interesting experience for me because I get to sort of see the difference between like the unedited conversation and the final one and go like, oh wow, Greg did this and Greg did that. Oh my god! So yes, that's always good. I don't know what those noises just now were, but there you have it. They were Uh, they were noises. They were definitely noises. If you're wondering what I'm going to do next, I Sarah is on the sofa and she's mm-hmm. just got Apple out and there was I'm curious oh, oh, oh. because it's fun times with the uh, with the little guy, yeah. I'm curious if in the edit you will be able to identify it, but there was a moment towards the end where Sarah brought Apple over and let him nibble on the microphone. So <laughs> there was a li- somewhere in the edit is a contribution from Apple. So. Uh, if you're hearing this in the outtakes, dear listener, uh, I guess our animal mos- mascot of the show is a little dwarf hamster named Apple, who I think may be going up my fiance's sleeve right now. I can assure you that this is definitely going to go in the outtakes, um, but I'll have to listen back and find out if, in fact, I do hear those noises, because mm. it's like, you know, sometimes I... Like, we can't even hear the friggin' motorcycles that we pretend are... No, I I guess this microphone is such an improvement because it knows what to emphasize, but I'm hoping... Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Oh, yeah, uh, I remember uh, way back when, when I was doing my, like, experimental podcast thing where I would just read out my reviews and, like, edit them together with some music and what have you and some... Some fun sections that I do miss, which I would call off the cuff, where like I would so much of that, those things were just me reading prepared things and trying mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. make them entertaining and accessible to people if they didn't necessarily have the time or inclination to read like mm-hmm. walls and walls of text. But uh, I would essentially set a timer for 10 minutes, take a topic that I had thought of and just say like, OK, I have zero preparation. Let's just do this. That's kind of what we do here with News of the Century, which is great and it's very different. But anyway, it, it the, works better with the byplay, I think. It does. It does absolutely work better with that. But uh, I bring all of that up because uh, at one point when I was recording, Sarah brought our previous hamster, who was a black and white Syrian hamster named oh. Pongo. I'm oh goodness, yeah. After 101 Dalmatians, yes. Um, and I'm looking at a picture of him right now, but um, we have a lot of pictures of animals and our current pets, previous pets. We're, we're very much a pet household, and mm-hmm. Sarah brought Pongo in, 
And I asked, okay, Pongo, do you have anything to say? And he just reached out and nibbled the microphone. So we have this <laughs> little audio clip of uh, Hamster just chewing a microphone. It's great. So, you if... know, if we don't have it on our recording here, maybe you could find that just so I can insert it in so people know in... what a hamster chewing on a microphone sounds like. I, I will absolutely send you the Pongo sound bit so they know what a hamster chewing a microphone sounds like. <laughs> so, with any luck, in this show, you will hear both uh, Apple and Pongo's uh, contributions. So uh, if you have fan mail, Apple appreciates uh, sliced up cucumber and sunflower seeds. And uh, I think Pongo also appreci appreciated uh, sunflower seeds. So you know what? Send that in too. I personally couldn't pick out the sound during the initial edit. And maybe I accidentally took it out at some point, which is why you can't hear it. Or maybe I missed it and you'll be able to pick it up just fine. But in the meantime, as promised, here is the sound clip of Pongo once upon a time chewing on a microphone. Yes, that's the kind of riveting content you come here to Through the Wind Door 4. There was also a small amount of conversation with Sarah in those post-podcast conversations. But the microphone didn't pick her up much, save for our response to this whole hamster subplot. The debut of Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> the unspoken contributor to the background stuff, through even uh, if it's just through providing hamster. Um, <laughs> Sarah will provide all the hamster sound effects that uh, we need, I assure you of that. That makes it sound like it's her doing them. I <laughs> I know that she could. I it, yeah. I know she could if we needed to. But anyway. Love us, love us, love us.